What caused you to come to the emergency department today? Not being able to stand up, shave, hold my fork, clip my fingernails, walk. You feel weak? Weakness in my muscles, yes. That is a real patient presenting to the emergency department with generalized weakness. And this is C3, Comprehensive Core Curriculum. The topic today, you guessed it, is generalized weakness. And we are going to go into greater detail on this exact case, but we're going to do that at the end of the episode. Once you have the knowledge and education to equip yourself to work through the exam and the differential for this patient. But if you just can't wait and you want to hear the case, you can jump to the end now. I'm joined today by co-host and good friend, Dr. Jenny Farah, who's an emergency physician at UC San Diego and is also board certified in emergency medical services. Welcome, Jenny. How are you? Good. Long time no recording. This is wonderful. Happy to be here in C3 land. I've been in other MRAP lands, but it's nice to venture to this one. For anyone who doesn't know Jenny, Jenny has been part of MRAP for a very long time now. You hear her on the occasional MRAP audio segment. We hear a lot of Jenny on the Crunch Time board review series. And Jenny and I personally go back to medical school, and we were podcast co-hosts all the way back then when we were medical students. So we have a long history of co-hosting together and finally now on C3. So thank you so much for doing this. Pleasure is all mine. Excited to get to work on these episodes. So as our listeners know, C3 stands for Comprehensive Core Curriculum. What we are doing now is we're taking these big topics in corpendium and then following that chapter along. So it's in some ways sort of a verbal explanation of what's in the chapter. But then we like to sprinkle in our own personal experiences, jokes and stories and things like that. And so I'm sure bring in the book to life. Yes, bring in the book to life. Yeah. So I want to acknowledge the chapter authors who wrote the chapter on the approach to generalized weakness, our very own Dr. Whitney Johnson, as well as Leah Bauer and Shen Lee. And I think right off the bat, we have to start with some clarification about what we're talking about here, which is generalized weakness. Generalized weakness is not focal weakness. How is that important and different, Jenny? Well, it's important because, you know, when you're talking about focal weakness, you're looking at maybe like a focal insult or problem, like a focal neurologic deficit is usually what we're talking about. Generalized weakness, you're dealing with a different problem. And in a lot of our elderly patients, this is kind of how they can present, which is nonspecific symptoms. You know, so it's a completely different ballgame. I personally love how weakness is always that chief complaint that pops up on the track and it's like a giant game of chicken on who's not going to take it because no one wants to step on these because they're afraid they're going to be too vague and too hard to work through. But actually, you know, the more you sort through it, the more we can tackle these. It's just challenging because you're going through more of a gray zone of how patients are reporting their symptoms. Yep. And that's who we're focused on really is this vague general complaint that is in fact nonspecific. And so the first thing you have to do is to make sure you're not dealing with a focality or a more specific complaint, which we would address very differently. So as we structure the corpendium chapters, we do start with the sickest patient, the A's, B's, and C's, before we get into the discussion on history, exam, differential, etc. So with that, let's start with the approach to the critical patient. Worst first. Right. And again, this is on a continuum, right? So You know, your most weak patient could actually be obtunded, right? They could be comatose and not breathing. So we're on the far end of the spectrum now, the sickest of the sick in terms of a generalized weakness complaint, right? So with these folks, you're going to your ABCs. You're dealing with their airway. You want to get them on the monitor, administer oxygen as needed, get that IV in place. 
And obviously, you want to assess for anything reversible before you place a definitive airway like intubating. And reversible, easy things are checking a glucose. If you're suspecting opioid toxicity, administering Narcan. All these things you want to do up front because once you intubate them, you're sort of taking away that assessment. You're taking away that exam. And so things to consider right away. And, you know, if you're looking at a patient who is looking comatose or somnolent, again, the farther end of the spectrum of generalized weakness, there's a couple things you can assess for that will help you in your decision of whether or not to take over their ventilation and intubate them. And what are those things, Jess? Okay, so again, the severe end of the spectrum here. This is someone who is so weak that they can barely speak or not speak. Someone who can't hold their own head up is breathing very shallow and rapid, maybe using accessory muscles, just diffuse profound weakness to the point that they are hypoxic or have hypercarbia and are altered. That would be a presentation that anyone should be very concerned about. And that would be someone who you need to get your quick neuro exam and then you need to take control of their airway while you sort out the rest. And speaking of intubating the patient, what medications should we be thinking of for that RSI? Well, you might want to use a non-depolarizing agent because a lot of times these circumstances, you don't know what's going on. So you have to err on the side of safety. They're undifferentiated. So if you think that hyperkalemia is at play, you might want to use your rocaronium over other agents that could cause worsening hyperkalemia. So just things to consider because these are the patients who aren't going to be able to talk to you and you may not get a lot of collateral. And if you're not necessarily going right to intubation land, but you just want some ventilation assistance, you know, make sure that you're supplying non-invasive positive pressure ventilation as needed. Obviously, their alertness would have to be there for them to interact with CPAP or BiPAP and work with that type of mechanical ventilation. But nonetheless, you might be trying that before you're going towards intubation. And then if you notice any hypotension, you obviously want to start some fluids and obtain an EKG as well, just to assess for any acute cardiac stuff that could be going on that again, is manifesting as just a generally weak patient who can't supply you a lot of information. So we've done A, B, and C. Now let's talk about D, disability. And we also like to throw dextrose in there, right? You definitely want to get your point of care glucose check. But for disability, this is your opportunity to get your neurologic exam quickly because if this patient truly is that sick, you may lose that opportunity soon if you have to intubate them. So get your neuro exam. You have to answer that question. Is this focal? or generalized. You're also going to look at their pupils, right? Like you mentioned, possibly considering naloxone. Do they have pinpoint pupils? And then get an assessment of their GCS or Glasgow Coma Scale. The other thing that's really easy to miss is exposure. In a real sick patient, oh, you need to get- We've all been burned. We've all been burned with exposure. Oh yeah. I, very recently. So this one's fresh in my mind, but if sick <laughs> patients, you, you really have to look at them head to toe. What are some things that you might find while you're exposing the patient that could clue you into an etiology. Right, you could be seeing signs of trauma. I had a patient just last week who had evidence of a suture repair on a scalp. So obviously he went to some other hospital after some head trauma, made us think maybe about some delayed bleeding or some type of sequelae from a head trauma. You might see evidence of drug use. You could see track marks. You might see patches, right? People have like opioid patches that they could be applied and maybe that's why they're so sedated. So definitely wanna disrobe your patient Another thing that you could assess for once they're exposed is sort of a sense of temperature if you haven't obtained a core temperature yet. So you might notice if they feel particularly cold or warm to touch. All things that will help you in your decision making for someone who otherwise can't share with you what's going on. And then the other thing you're looking when you expose the patient, you're looking for wounds or signs of infection. So you have not completed your exam until you've rolled the patient and you've seen what is on their back. And in a patient who's this sick, 
you need to look in the places where the sun don't shine. You got to look in their groin. You got to make sure you're not missing something bad like a Fournier's gangrene, for example. So all sorts of surprises can pop up when you truly expose the patient. And you have to do that in someone who's critically ill. Absolutely. They're mysteries and you're there to solve the mystery. And so some key concepts to remember. So you have this patient. It's a very vague presentation. And where you go from there, your forks in the road can be different. Some people like to look at this in terms of, you know, is there a focal finding here? And I'm going to chase that versus generalize. And we're sort of in the camp of generalized symptomatology at this point. So maybe they're looking at timing. Like, is this an acute process where they were otherwise normal up until a few hours ago? Or is this acute on chronic? Like maybe they've always had this deficit, but it's acutely worse or showing up in other ways. I personally like to take it from more of a systems approach. You know, is this cardiovascular? Is this pulmonary? Is this endocrine or metabolic? But nonetheless, you're going to start to branch off into different decision-making trees. And again, to echo a theme we said earlier, you first have to make sure that there is no focality, right? You have to make sure that this is not a focal neurologic problem because that sets you on a completely different pathway. And I know we've all got stroke protocols in our emergency department. There's plenty of pre-hospital stroke protocols. So we all know what it's like to have someone pull us aside and say, hey, we're billing this person as a possible stroke code. Can you go assess them? So you have to have your quick and dirty assessment to identify whether this is sort of an acute insult, acute neurologic problem that's likely going to give you some, at least if not a focal finding, a constellation of findings concerning for a stroke versus everything else. Because I don't know about you, Jess, but a lot of different patients get flagged as code strokes who are not having an acute neurologic ischemic or hemorrhagic event, but all sorts of things can show up as a quote unquote stroke. So you've got to be able to make that decision quickly in the middle of a busy shift where you're probably getting interrupted, you know, having tried to do a hundred other things. So just something to consider. Yeah, that lateralizing weakness, that's one of the big clues there that it's possibly a stroke that you're dealing with. And speaking of lateralizing weakness, I think it's helpful to think about this in terms of patterns or paradigms. So as soon as I say a certain keyword, for me, it helps me go down a certain cognitive pathway. Lateralizing weakness, I think of stroke. But there are other patterns of weakness that point us towards other differential diagnoses. So let me give you some patterns, Jenny, and maybe you could tell me some of the things that could cause that, okay? Now, again, this is not really the focus of the episode, but it's important to remember this and to suss this out as you're doing your history and exam to really ask yourself, is this patient falling into a pattern of weakness and not generalized weakness? Okay, so Jenny, we talked about lateralizing weakness. What about lower extremity weakness, perhaps even ascending weakness? Ooh, this feels like I'm doing a board prep. I feel like I'm on crunch time with you. (laughs) I love it. Okay, so the legs are the only thing that's out. If it's ascending, you know, you're thinking of a Guillain-Barre. Like, did they have a recent infection? Like, what other things could I be told that would point me in that direction? Or is it a tick, you know? Ascending paralysis, something we associate with tick paralysis. So certainly, like, if it's that focal and they can tell me it started at their toes and is moving upward, I'm thinking something special. Versus if someone just walks in and says, both my legs are out, it kind of happened at the same time you know, or sort of in the same constellation, then I'm thinking spinal cord compression, right? Or other spinal cord pathologies that could be sort of knocking both legs out together and not in a, like an ascending or descending fashion. Okay, so that's lower extremity greater than upper extremity. Could it just be the spinal cord or is this actually moving upward and ascending paralysis? What about if I said bulbar weakness? First of all, let's, what does bulbar mean? It's a term that we use and not everyone understands it. What's bulbar weakness and what sort of diagnoses follow that pattern. Yeah, so bulbar weakness, we're really looking at like the head and neck here, right? These are people who are going to have symptomatology focused on usually their mouth, 
So like myasthenia gravis patients or that Miller-Fisher gradient of Guillain-Barre, you know, all these people who might have difficulty speaking, chewing, swallowing. Botulism could look a lot like this. And I could so easily see how someone with slurred speech is going to show up as a code stroke, right? Like, but if that's all they've got going and the rest of their facial or neck muscles are doing just fine, not to mention everything else on their body, or they're not exhibiting any profound facial droop, it's really just the movement of these muscles. Super, super localized, right? Very focal finding. That's not a stroke. It's, it's not as focal as we might think it is. But that's what I would be thinking if they had that kind of bulbar weakness. Right. That could be one of these entities that you mentioned or a stroke. It could be either. Okay. So that's lower extremity weakness, bulbar weakness. What about, here's the tough one, but an important one to recognize. You do your exam and you realize that the upper extremities are more weak than the lower extremities. So upper extremity weakness greater than lower extremity. What's that a clue for? Well, that's nice because there's only so many things that cause that yeah. problem. And central cord syndrome or just like anything pointing to, to the cervical spine, right? The nerves that would service the upper part of the body and maybe not affecting all those nerve transmissions down below. You know, central cord is really what we think about. And with that, you have to ask about like mechanisms of injury and how they might have hurt themselves. So, you know, thankfully, something like that is so specific and unique. Barring that you can get a good exam out of this individual, I would definitely be focused on central cord syndrome. And that could be someone who had a recent trauma. Maybe they came to the hospital. Maybe they didn't. And now they're just having trouble kind of picking up their coffee cup and doing their activities of daily life, right? Just function has declined. Think about central cord syndrome. And it would be bilateral, right? Versus like a yes. unilateral, like carpal good tunnel point. or something like that. So this would be both sides. And the symptom onset would be you know, shared with both sides. They may not be equally disabled, but certainly the onset of both of them on both sides would be, you know, around the same time frame. So something to consider versus like, we've all seen patients with carpal tunnel or other sort of more peripheral issues with their extremities. And usually the, the onset in, in description therein is, is quite different, but just something to consider. So these are a lot of different ways to think about weakness, to think about patterns of weakness. And once we kind of set those aside and we say, hey, you're not following any particular pattern, I think this is really just a generalized, non-specific weakness, then that's really what we're going to talk about for the rest of this episode. Chapter 2. History and Exam. We have determined that this patient is not having a focal issue. We are now in the land of generalized weakness. Everyone's favorite place to be in as an <laughs> yeah, ER doctor, right? right. Yep. The land of mystery. I actually find these patients the most fun because I know there's like a mystery on the horizon that needs to be solved. So where do we begin? How do we start? History. Some people have got their different like MOs for this, like how they operate. I think in terms of systems, it's like, okay, are they generally weak because of a hemodynamic dysfunction? So I'm thinking cardiovascular. Is it because they're suffering from hypoxia or maybe an infection of the lungs, so pulmonary? Are there metabolic derangements? And I throw into that batch a lot of things. Thyroid issues, electrolyte disturbances, like metabolic, I, you know, acid-base problems, dehydration. I sort of put it all in that camp. Basically the camp where I'm going to order some labs. Yes. <laughs> and I'll see what the labs tell me. And whatever the labs tell me what to do, I follow the labs, right? So that's that category. And then infection, not only pulmonary infections, like I mentioned earlier, but things like UTIs, cellulitis, going back to chapter one where we talked about disrobing the patient. You know, lots of things can hide in the infection realm unless you're looking for it. And with all of that, we're usually not in the neck of the woods of neuro. Like I'm usually, at this point, I've decided that maybe neuroimaging is not what this patient needs emergently, at least. So I'm not thinking along the lines of anything that would require like a CT or an MRI just yet. I'm sort of focused on everything else because again, it's, it's more of a generalized process, not best explained by acute neurologic emergency. 
So that's how I sort through it. So I don't just what's your kind of plan of attack when you realize, okay, we're just in general weakness land. I think that's a really good way to think about it. I want to highlight a couple things in that systems based approach. You said cardiovascular. Another thing that I've seen quite a few times is someone with a new onset atrial fibrillation. Mm -hmm, And, mm -hmm. you know, you're not going to pick that up just based off of looking at the patient. They might seem a little tachycardic on the monitor, maybe or maybe not. Maybe they're not in rapid AFib at that moment. So that ECG is really key. Make sure it's not that. Or some other dysrhythmia. There are all sorts of blocks and other things that can cause sort of a generalized weakness. And then another thing that could be missed if you're just thinking systems-based is polypharmacy. What medications has the patient recently been started on or what medications have been changed? Could that be affecting their blood pressure? Maybe they're over-treating hypertension and now they're chronically a little hypotensive. So think about polypharmacy as well. And then I think from there, we've really hit the major differential diagnosis, but now there's a whole bunch of unusual, the as Stuart Swadron calls it, the exotic diagnoses <laughs> on the differential. The case report ones. Yeah. Yes, the fancy yeah. ones. <laughs> yeah. So these would be botulism, Guillain-Barre, myasthenia gravis crisis, transverse myelitis. Again, many of these are going to have a focal or pattern to how they present. Tick paralysis. That's an ascending paralysis. ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, not a diagnosis I've made in the emergency department, but is something that could cause just generalized weakness. And then that final category that we should think about but really never anchor on in the emergency department is psychiatric. So that's not our first job, right? We got to look for organic etiologies that we can diagnose and treat. And later, once we've excluded the organic etiologies, Then we can think about depression, anxiety, somatization disorders, which again, not an ED diagnosis, but they are on the differential for generalized weakness. And so they are worth a mention. Absolutely. And again, diagnosis of exclusion, just like you said, Jess, but we're going to sort through all of that. And so let's talk about, so we're dealing with the patient we could talk to. I don't know if you already listened to chapter one, but chapter one, we did talk about the far end of the spectrum, the person who can't talk to you, who's somnolent, their weakness is so bad, they cannot breathe on their own. So let's assume we're not on that side of the spectrum. And now we're actually talking to a patient. What does the patient mean when they say weak? And this is where you have to like bust out your thesaurus and (laughs) offer these words to the patient. Because, you know, there's a lot of cultural interpretations of this. Mm -hmm. There's just so many things that people use the word weak to describe. And it's, it's not the way we think of weakness. One of the things I hear my patients say a lot is, I just don't feel like myself. Or -hmm. I just feel off. I don't have energy. They might use the word like fatigue, but it doesn't always mean like they're in pain. They don't tend to use the word malaise like we do. We use the word malaise, I think, more than patients do. But for it's sort of in that same spectrum of like, I just don't feel right. I feel achy and not well. This is a kind of chief complaint where you're going to have to sort through what their definition of this word means. And also clarifying with the patient, there's a lot of things to figure out here. How is this different from how they normally feel? What has changed? How quickly did it change? Did it change overnight? Like an acute change? Is it subacute? Has this been going on chronically over weeks? So asking the patient to really just press them on that history to see if there's any pattern that you can determine here. Ask about any recent trauma, new medications. Have they been sick recently? How about a change in their social history? I know a lot of us forget or dismiss the social history, but that could actually be a major clue. 
or very important for their disposition. So we want to get the social history. You know, weakness and falls. We've all seen the patient who is weak and so they fall and then they're weak and then they fall. But is some of that like a chicken and egg concept, right? Like they fell and bled into their head and they have a subdural and now they're weak because they've got a subdural and then they fall. And so at some point, you got to worry about trauma, even if that's not what they're telling you is the problem. They're maybe just telling you about the weakness, something to think about. Yeah. And going back to that social history, you know, we've got some patients who are triathlon athletes, right? And then we've got some patients who have a lot more low maintenance sort of ADLs and function of their life. So it's going to sort of be relative to that in terms of how abrupt and how significant the symptoms are and the onset that's involved in that. So yeah, super important to ask those questions. And then one thing I find when I do my assessments is that when someone says something's weak, I sometimes have to decipher whether it's just difficult or painful for them to move their extremities, for example, right? Or versus they actually have true weakness. So, you know, we all see this. Patients can restrict movement of, let's say, an arm or a wrist when they're in pain or if it's swollen. Like I have patients with lower extremity edema who have difficulty moving their legs, but it's really because of the restriction of the swelling. It's not because the nerve signal to that extremity is compromised, right? So it has to do more soft tissue findings or just pain in that area. So when they're telling you they can't move things, i.e. that's their weakness, sometimes you have to decipher, well, is it that it hurts so bad you don't want to move it? Or is it that you actually cannot sense your muscles and move them in the fashion I'm asking you to? Because you can easily have patients who will say, I can't move it, I can't move it. But then you can passively range it and then they could sort of push a little bit beyond what they thought they could do because they're pushing through the pain. And it helps you figure out like what exactly is going on here. And this is also when you might have to get collateral from family, you know, because if the patient obviously can express these things as clearly as as we like or not in the way that we can kind of interpret it to do our workup. And then from there, you know, just sort of getting the global picture of this person, like how well are you hydrated? Are you eating okay? You know, have there been secondary symptoms to this like nausea or decreased appetite, just stuff to consider for all of that. And then another thing that can cause a lot of generalized weakness is maybe an occult bleed. You know, usually if someone has like a flagrant bleed, like a, I'm throwing up blood or vaginal bleeding, that will be a part of their chief complaint and they will tell you it. But if it's a cult, they may not offer that up and that could be contributing as well. So things that you might have to assess for. Or sometimes patients aren't going to tell you that they have blood in their stool. They're not, maybe they feel like a little embarrassed about it and they don't want to offer that. I am still so surprised People who don't look in the toilet bowl. I know. To this day, I have so many patients. I go, are you seeing blood in the toilet bowl? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Like, well, I don't look. I am so shocked by it. Still this far into my career, which is still early. But, you know, I've done this a couple of years. The the people who don't look at the toilet bowl, we should, this should be like a public service announcement. (laughs) Everybody start looking in the toilet after you poop because that information, especially if you're going to go to the hospital, that information will be very helpful. You know, everyone should take a look. I don't know how you flush without looking down, but people do it. I have Sorry, no not, idea. Not to rant, no, no, but. no. Get on your soapbox. I feel the same way. I can't believe people don't look at their poop. Shape, color, aroma, texture. It helps the doctors make their conjecture. Scat, that's where it's at. Look at your scat. And furthermore, when people describe, oh, I had blood in my poop, My follow-up question, I don't know about you, but my follow-up question is always, do you have a picture, right? Show me a picture of it. A lot of people are like, I I don't want to see a picture of poop. I want to see a picture of your poop because (laughs) I can, I'm not, you know, 100% accurate here, but I feel like I could get a sense of like, no, that's actual melanin or that's actual bright red blood. And it gives me a sense for how much is in there. So I'm, I'm a big fan 
when clinically applicable of looking at poop pictures. I think it's very helpful. Yeah, I love a good show and tell. I love it when they're like, I took a picture. That helps me so much. And I agree with you, Jess. Sometimes it's like maybe some minimal blood streaks on an otherwise like normal appearing stool. Or sometimes you see that the toilet bowl is completely filled with blood. And you're like, oh, okay. I I totally get why that's concerning. It's so helpful. And, you know, I just think we need to just do a PSA. I mean, this is an epidemic. People not looking (laughs) in the toilet. We really need to call attention. And anyone who wants to be a part of our army of people either looking at their poop or making (laughs) photographs of it and taking them to the ER, we can all be on this together. Okay, sorry. We'll get back. Sorry about that. Shape, color, aroma, texture, describe your soul. That's the rule. Anywho, that's kind of GI gynecology land, right? Because you can get vaginal bleeding or hematuria, like you could be, you know, urinating blood. Again, could all be a cult, so you might have to really search for it. But another system to explore is the, those endocrine issues, right? So have you been losing a lot of weight recently or gaining weight? Are you having heat or cold sensitivities? How are your bowels? Are you constipated or are you stooling a lot and perhaps even having diarrhea? Are you urinating a lot? Are you excessively thirsty? Kind of thinking about like the diabetes, blood glucose realm. Asking about any chest discomfort or palpitations. They may not offer it up, especially palpitations because they could be episodic and not occurring now. But if you bring it up, they could offer that up to you. And then you're thinking like maybe thyroid or other things that can cause intermittent palpitations. And like we already discussed earlier, any kind of infection symptoms you want to explore too. Fevers, chills, dysuria, are you coughing more, runny nose, rashes, possibly cellulitic, things like that that you want to explore that they may not offer up until you're going through your review of systems. And this is what you're landing on. Physical exam. Moving on to the exam, of course, we're starting with looking at their vital signs. Sometimes it's very telling. Are they hypotensive? Are they really tachycardic? That's very important information. And then I feel like there's certain things you should kind of do on every patient, right? Like with few exceptions, you're going to listen to most patients' hearts and lungs, right? You're going to do a quick cardiac and pulmonary exam. But you have to do a neurologic exam on a patient complaining of weakness, okay? You can't make any assumptions here. Like, oh, well, if it was just the right side that they would tell me. Jenny, I can't tell you the number of residents and medical students who have presented a patient like this to me. And I asked them if they did a neuro exam and they either honestly tell me, no, I didn't, which I'm like, oh, my God, there's a neuro complaint. Go back, present the patient once you've done the neuro exam. Or they say, yeah, yeah, I did it. I did it. And then I go examine the patient and they have focal weakness on one side of their body. And I'm like, you didn't do the neuro exam. You have to do the neuro exam with a neuro complaint or anything that could possibly be a neuro complaint. That's my soapbox. And I know it's tempting because I think what happens is you see them walk to their bed, maybe. You're talking to them. You're not noticing any asymmetry in their face. You're not noticing any asymmetry in their arms and legs. So there's a lot of assumptions made that there isn't anything focal. And like you said, Jess, it's sort of like we assume that the patient would tell us if like their right arm felt weaker than the left. But they may not always appreciate it if it's subtle. But yes, totally agree. These are the patients you really will need to do an itemized neurological exam because it may not be as obvious as you think. Yeah, and you don't have to go through every single thing, right? We're not the neurologist. We're not medical students. We're not checking every single muscle group and every single reflex. But you have to check reflexes. Even if you just check a couple of them, I think that this is important, right? Things that are on the differential, like hyper or hypothyroidism, they can have changes in their reflexes. Or spinal cord pathology, where you might find an upper motor neuron sign like a Babinski sign. It takes you just five seconds to do, and sometimes it's going to just help shine the light on which direction to go. 
right? Just like listening to their lungs, listening to their heart sounds, you might discover that murmur or notice that irregularity like we're talking about with AFib, which yeah, that is a very common thing that can go undetected and just leads to generalized weakness. I've certainly seen that. Skin exam as well. You want to disrobe them, check for any rashes, maybe some track marks, maybe some signs of dehydration, all things that will help you on your investigation. Labs. So now what do we want to order? What kind of labs do we want? Well, there's easy ones like a point of care glucose, right? Quick little finger stick. That's nice. EKG also non-invasive can give you a lot of information. CBCs are helpful. It'll be revealing for any kind of anemia because an occult anemia can definitely show up like this with a lot of vague symptoms. Maybe a sky high white count infection or, you know, some type of oncologic process. We don't know. Also, in those chemistry labs, you might be seeing evidence of malnutrition, electrolyte problems, renal failure. There's been a lot of AKIs that I've discovered. Not really clear why the AKI happened. Maybe we're still going to investigate that. But certainly an acute kidney injury definitely can show up as just, I've been feeling weak and not like myself lately. 100% Or perhaps even a chronic kidney disease, right? Someone who hasn't been in touch with the medical system for a long time, and you're the first one to check their renal function. And wow, they have chronic kidney disease that they've probably been living with for years, and now they're starting to decompensate. So it's very key. Yeah. And also those acid-base disturbances too can be super helpful to sort through once you have that BMP or CMP in play and can work with it getting that urine to assess for any kind of UTI. The occult UTI shows up in so many patients, especially chronically ill or elderly patients. And then thyroid. Just do you order TSHs on everyone? I'm a little select with my TSHs. I tend to reserve it for like vital sign abnormalities or if they are having palpitations, like something where I would want to initiate treatment if it was abnormal. But I know our TSH doesn't come back right away in our lab, so I'm not always ordering the TSH for folks. I have a pretty low threshold for ordering it. It does come back fairly quickly where I work. And so I have a very low threshold for getting a TSH in this type of patient. Yeah. And you just kind of have to interpret it. Like if you have a TSH, it's barely above your threshold, but their vital signs are okay. I may just refer them to outpatient land to have that looked at. Oh, absolutely. Right. Totally essential. And if they're getting admitted, yes, absolutely. I would order it and super helpful because that can cause so many vague symptoms. And it's, it's a useful sort of screening lab that we can get out of the ER. And then more exotic things to kind of fit with those more exotic diagnoses that we were talking about, especially in the neuro realm. You know, a lumbar puncture might be in this patient's future. It's hard to say. I mean, it could be revealing for things that are, again, are on the more exotic end of the spectrum for all of this, but that might be something you perform for these patients. So what are some of those things, Jenny, that an LP might be helpful for? What things on the differential could that shed light on? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about weakness. So I'm not really thinking meningitis per se. I mean, meningitis usually presents as a more like septic altered when it's bad, when it's like bacterial meningitis. It's more infectious or if it's viral meningitis, more to that. You might get that malaise and fever component. But if you're going with maybe a more sort of autoimmune issue, like we talked about Guillain-Barre, you can get this like even a multiple sclerosis or transverse myelitis, like these things where you might see immunoglobulins, like the things that may not come back on our LP poll, but we're going to order. And again, on the more exotic spectrum, but that might be revealing in your LP. In addition to the standard like white count and cell count, is this meningitis and do we care and are we going to treat it? Like that's obviously going to be a part of it too, but it can help you sort through the more rare neurologic issues and that could be very helpful. So something to consider, but certainly not something we do on every week patient. And other things, depending on the history that they give you, consider checking for a CK, creatinine kinase for rhabdomyolysis in someone who perhaps did a lot of recent exercise or in the elderly patient who was so weak they fell and they've been unable to get up off the floor and have been down for hours or days, you're going to want to check for rhabdo. 
Other things, depending on that history, are you at all concerned for carbon monoxide exposure? You might yeah. want to check a carboxyhemoglobin. Is this a patient who is on digoxin? It's a drug that we can check levels. You can get toxic on digoxin. So we're going to check for a digoxin level if they happen to be on that medication. And then again, this is more unusual, but someone who you think might have a rheumatologic problem, consider getting an ESR. Imaging. What about imaging? What imaging do you think is important? Yeah, this is challenging. So we're, we're in that space of where we don't think it's a focal problem, right? So it could be really hard to target your imaging, especially if you're looking at neuroimaging like CT or MRI. But certainly if you're looking at the infection realm, a chest X-ray is a kind of a quick way to sort of assess for that. Or maybe an underlying malignancy if it's pulmonary and some nodules or something's going to show up on that chest X-ray for you. But it's such a simple low radiation exposure test or diagnostic that I think these patients, especially if you really have no focal symptoms to work off of, could certainly be helpful getting that chest X-ray. And if you are suspecting maybe some potential focal issues or a suspicion of trauma, maybe old trauma like that subdural we were talking about, a head CT can be helpful. And then if you're getting a little bit fancier, this is like your more admitted patient we're calling neurology, an MRI might be in the plan for this patient. So imaging is maybe a little bit more limited in this space because, again, it's, we don't have much to work with in terms of specifying a certain body part that's a problem. But there are simple things you can order that can cross some stuff off the list that's on the more dangerous realm. So a low threshold for a chest X-ray and have a good reason if you're going to order a head CT or an MRI. So we've covered a lot in this section. We went through the differential, we went through the history, the exam, and the workup, including labs and imaging. Lots of things here to think about. And we're going to come back in the next chapter and we're actually going to have a special focus on fatigue and weakness in the elderly, which is, I think, the most common population who comes in with this presentation. Chapter 3, Fatigue and Weakness in Older Adults. Thanks for making it to Chapter 3, folks, <laughs> on this exciting adventure of generalized weakness. Who knew there could be so many exciting things to talk about? And we're going to now talk about specifically how this manifests in our elderly population. So these are the folks who may not even say they're weak. They just might say that they're fatigued or they don't feel like themselves. They just are less active than they normally are. And at that point, you might have to get some collateral or ask them like, well, what, what is your function at home? Are you someone who's up and walking a couple miles in the neighborhood every day? Or are you someone who already has some home assistance with maybe home health, but you're going below that baseline as well? And so kind of getting that gauge of what's going on in their lives is super helpful. And you also want to make sure by asking some good questions, just like we talked about previously, is this a focal problem to one part of your body or is this just sort of a general symptom that you're experiencing? And you're going to want to ask those secondary questions of timeline to make sure that this isn't something sudden. They didn't just an hour ago start to experience this. Was this something more chronic? Is this acute on chronic? You know, what's going on? Because obviously the former, the more sudden onset would kind of raise our alarm bells for a more emergent diagnosis. So if you feel like you're not in that space and you're more in just our generalized weakness, fatigue, not like myself in the elderly population, there's some things you might want to consider. And Jess is actually going to tell us about a great study that explored this very issue. Yeah, there was a couple of papers on this subject. So the first one looked at nonspecific complaints in the elderly. And so they basically said anything that patients describe as weakness, dizziness, just kind of feeling unwell. We're going to lump that into this category of a quote-unquote nonspecific complaint. Out of those patients, they found that the mean age was 82. So we really are talking about our older patients. And older patients are much more likely to come in just nonspecific compared to younger ones. Here's 
I think one of the take-home points from this paper is that they found a serious, potentially life-threatening diagnosis within 30 days of the ED visit in 60% of these patients. That's huge, Jenny. I mean, what does that tell you? That means that there's a lot of people we might be discharging home who we didn't necessarily miss anything, but the chances that something could evolve and they could succumb or just demonstrate a more serious illness is pretty high. So just to have a higher index of suspicion, maybe doing a little bit more of a workup than we would for a younger patient, that's what the study is sort of telling me, just to be a little bit more on the lookout because the chances of them having something that may not really manifest or reveal itself to later in the month is quite high. Yeah, and it also tells me that this nice elderly person who's sitting in your lobby, just because they're sitting there minding their own business, not screaming or flailing or hypoxic or having a crisis in that moment, they could still be having something really bad happening to them. So we have to treat that complaint with a lot of respect. Here's another cool point from this paper, which is that when they checked in with that chief complaint that was nonspecific, a lot of patients ended up getting excluded from the study because they ended up declaring a more specific chief complaint on further history. So they check in, you know, the triage nurse writes down, uh, feeling unwell. But then when you go talk to them and you spend a little more time with them than the five seconds that the triage nurse has, you find out that they actually say, well, I'm really out of breath or I'm feeling chest discomfort or I have a lot of pain when I try to walk. And it's like, oh, that, that's a completely different chief complaint now. It puts us on a different path. And they also found in this paper that many of these patients with just generalized weakness had a recent fall. So remember that correlation between trauma and generalized weakness. They fall because they are weak or they weak because they fell and they've got an intracranial hemorrhage. So that's the first paper, some great take-home points there. And there was a second paper on weakness and fatigue in the elderly. This one was a massive review, over 180,000 adults over age 65 who presented with generalized weakness. And they said that, hey, this was a very common, as we know, very common reason for presenting to the emergency department. The fifth most common reason in this age group behind trauma, shortness of breath, chest pain, and abdominal pain. Now, this study looked at what was the final diagnosis. You come in with generalized weakness. What is the actual diagnosis? The first one, the diagnosis is malaise and fatigue about 30% of the time. Wow, that's so helpful. That's so helpful. That's, that's great. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's funny, right? When the diagnosis is the chief complaint, like it sounds like we reached no conclusions and we did nothing. But actually it tells me that a lot of the time it's not a question we're gonna answer in the emergency department and it's not something that was likely emergent, right? This is your outpatient yeah. primary care follow-up where And I, really I set up patients for that too. I say, I may not find the answer, but I will make sure you are safe to go home and I do, I set them up for that. Because when you have these sort of vague, nonspecific reports, you know, you may not get that answer. So, you know, we laugh because, yeah, 30% of patients had a discharge diagnosis of malaise and fatigue. But this is a reminder that you got to prep them. I mean, we do this already in the emergency department, but this is one of those ones, my mm -hmm. goodness, are you going to have to prepare them? Say, look, I may not find the exact answer, but I will make sure you are safe to go home and we will come up with a plan for you as outpatient. So that's, that, that's right. actually what that tidbit reminds me to do. You know, yes. that's what it's telling me to do. Yeah. Now, here were the top two diagnoses where an actual diagnosis was reached. Someone comes in with generalized weakness and we diagnose them with something very specific. Pneumonia and urinary tract infection. 14% of the time for pneumonia and 14% had a urinary tract infection. And for me, this was a major light bulb moment. This was like, oh my gosh, we should get chest x-rays on all elderly patients who are generally weak because they're not coming in saying, I have a cough, I'm short of breath, I'm having a fever, right? They are not the textbook. 
They're just coming in feeling weak. And same with the urinary tract infection. I was like, I don't believe this. I, I feel like people who have a UTI, they're going to tell you it burns when I pee or I'm peeing all the time. No, they're not telling any of that unless perhaps you prod them a bit on the review of systems. But maybe your only clue is generalized weakness and the diagnosis ends up being a UTI or pneumonia. So I thought those were really yeah. important. And it's easy, right? A chest X-ray and like a urine dip even if you didn't want to do the full on urinalysis. So they're easy things to assess for. And now that we see, you know, the high incidence of that that started as a vague complaint, I think all the more reason to send off for those easy tests. And I'll just name off some of the less common but still made the list of other diagnoses that were reached with the chief complaint of generalized weakness. Syncope, CHF, volume depletion, fever, again, a, a nonspecific diagnosis there, anemia, which we've talked quite a bit about, dehydration, which is kind of the same as volume depletion, and GI bleed. But those were not very common. GI bleed is only 4%. Anemia is only 4%. One more final take-home point from this paper, and we know this, is that the ED wait times are longer than average for these elderly patients who present with generalized weakness. Of course, right? They look generally okay. We let them sit in the lobby for a long time, but they could be sitting out there with something bad. Absolutely. Other things to consider in our elderly population are things like polypharmacy. I mean, any patient could be sort of at, at risk for this, depending on what their medical history is looking like. But a lot of elderly patients have new medications added to the regimen or changes in their existing medications, uh, all things to explore with them to see if there's any type of temporal relationship between their symptom onset and maybe a recent change or addition or subtraction of their medications. And if you have like a, we have great clinical pharmacists where I work or a tech, someone who could just help you with that med reconciliation and looking at the adverse effects and sort of what might be typical for what they're on is actually super helpful, especially since you may not come up with a lot of answers in your workup, right? So you might have to get a little bit more detailed in your investigation than you would with the average patient. Another thing that can come up in elderly patients, just by virtue of the fact that they've been living longer and things can you know, grow and evolve over time, unknown to them, is something like an undiagnosed cancer. So this could just manifest as someone who progressively over the course of months has become deconditioned, they're malnourished, they're cachectic appearing. They just slowly but surely were sort of losing grip on their ADLs otherwise. And they just can't, they can't really verbalize why. They just know that gradually throughout the last couple of months, they haven't been like themselves. And with that, could have lost a lot of weight or less active. And, and with that, you know, just are sort of leaving you with these nonspecific symptoms. And you might discover something on imaging. You know, we talked already about the chest X-ray. That should be a low trigger for you to do that. And this might be where you find something. Doesn't mean you're going to do anything about it emergently, but that detection might happen during your visit. And that could be crucial. Other really important imaging too, we've discussed earlier the chronic subdural, kind of causing that chicken and egg phenomenon. That's where a head CT could be helpful particularly if they're falling a lot. And, you know, you might be getting the head CT to rule out an acute injury if they had a recent fall, but it might be revealing for a more chronic issue like that subdural. So that head CT can be super helpful as well in some cases. Recap. So I think, you know, step one, realize this is generalized weakness and nothing focal and nothing following a pattern. Step two is to be thorough with your history and your exam and really let that guide your workup and think through the differential diagnoses. Have a low threshold for doing a little bit more testing in your elderly patients because a significant portion of the time they have a serious, potentially life-threatening diagnosis that manifests within 30 days from presenting to your emergency department. And then to dovetail on that in, in terms of them going home and things can manifest later, another thing to consider in their home environment is, you know, what is their assistance? You know, if this is someone who's so weak that they can't sort of get through their activities of daily living. 
Is this someone where you need to sort of explore home health while they're figuring this out in the outpatient realm? You know, especially if they're falling a lot, is it even safe for them to return home? So these are the patients too, where you're going to be getting more of that social history, maybe calling some family. You're going to be doing some other things before you click discharge that you may not be doing for a younger patient with a similar complaint and workup. Well, I think we're going to wrap up there. But Jenny, I have to say, this was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for co-hosting this episode with me. And let's work on that public service announcement. Right? Right? It's a paramount. Forget about COVID. We need to take care of this problem. (laughs) Shape, color, aroma, texture. It helps the doctors make their conjecture. That's where it's at. Look at your scalp. Shape, color, aroma, texture. Describe your soul. That's the rule. You may not want to look at your guano, but just to be sure, check the manure. Scat. Ah! Why do you have these pictures on your phone? It's disgusting! It's for the doctors! Chapter 4. Case. So in this episode, Jenny Fair and I talked about the approach to generalized weakness, and now we have a real case, and I have another real doctor to talk about it with, and that is Stuart Swadron. Thanks, Stu. Thank you. We're going to hear from the patient himself. This is a 62-year-old male, and his complaint was generalized weakness, but now let's get the rest of the story from him. What caused you to come to the emergency department today? Not being able to stand up, shave, hold my fork, clip my fingernails, walk. Do you feel weak? Weakness in my muscles, yes. Do you feel weak in your entire body, or is there a certain part or side that feels more weak than others? My entire body, both sides, both legs. Now, I understand that your right arm has been weak for a long time. Is that right? Five, six years. Okay. When did the weakness in the rest of your body start? A little over a year ago. And what was it that was made you come in today with this going on for so long? What, what change that made you come in today? It was just escalating to the point to where I, I can't use my body much. And uh, when's the last time that you saw a doctor? 20-something years ago. Okay. So you never got seen when your right arm got weak? No. Okay. We don't know if you have any other medical issues mm-hmm. that have been going on. I understand. Okay. Um, are you having any difficulty uh, breathing? No. Any difficulty swallowing? No. Any difficulty speaking? No. Okay. And um, tell me about the tingling and numbness that you've been feeling. It's hard to explain. It's just like, you know, my hands feel like they're really rough. It feels like my hands are just like sandpaper. So your hands, how far up does that go up your arms? To my elbow. Do you feel like your upper arms, if I touch your upper arms? I just barely feel that, really. Okay. I mean, I can feel it movement, but I, as far as the touch, I can't. Okay, so you have decreased sensation up here, and then it seems to get worse if we go down towards your fingers? Totally. Okay. Yeah, I can't, like, doing that, I can't feel the bottom of my hand rubbing my knee. What about your legs? Do you have any numbness or tingling in your legs, your feet, your toes? No, it's mostly just from my tip of my fingers to my elbow as far as the numbness, and, but as far as the weak, weakness, it's the rest of my body. So that was the history. Now, in terms of the exam, if you are able to look in your app or on the website, actually have a video of what the patient's physical exam looked like. But don't worry, if you're not able to watch it right now, 
We'll describe it for you as we go through and talk about it. Stuart, why don't you tell me your thoughts about the history and the exam based on what he said and what you saw in that video? Right. Well, you know, I can't give you my overall gestalt Mm -hmm. in terms of, because I know a lot of people like to think, is it sick or not sick, that type of thing. And I have to say that my overall gestalt is that it's a little more on the chronic side and it's not an emergent situation. That's sort of my, my gestalt. But having said that, you've got to be really careful when someone comes into your emergency department and they said, I could walk and now I can't walk. That's a very, it might not be a neurologic hard place in a continuum in disease, but it certainly is for the average person, you know, a huge focal point. There's a few very specific things that I think are important to point out. You'll notice on the examination that he has right upper extremity weakness. Yes. And it's hard to tell just on the video exactly what the origin of that is. And I would be very careful with that. It might be the remnants of a stroke. For all I know, it could be peripheral. This could be a radial nerve injury. It could be a plexus injury. You can't really tell. Another really important thing I wanted to point out about that upper extremity exam, though, is that it does also kind of appear to me, and again, it's hard to be sure, that he's holding his arm where it appears that the flexors are more prominent than the extensors. And that's really important, that pyramidal distribution of weakness, where you have the flexors stronger than the extensors in the upper extremity, and the reverse, the extensors stronger than the uh, flexors in the lower extremity. Really important to keep in mind when you're evaluating these patients, because those represent upper motor neuron lesions, right? Those represent lesions that are from the brain or the spinal cord. And so one of the upshots of that on the physical exam, and this is really, really important, is that we tend to ask for hand grips when we're assessing strength. And that's very insensitive because someone in a stroke can have very strong, apparently very strong flexors because of the relative weakness of their extensors. So I think it's very important to do a pronator drift test on patients to unmask subtle weakness. And also think about having them open their fingers and open their hands, extend their hands rather than grip their hands, because you could be very misled when someone actually does have significant weakness in the pyramidal distribution. So I wanted to point that out as well. That is a really good point. I don't think I've ever heard that before, but you could see in that video, if you got the chance to watch it, he is sort of holding his arm sort of curled up in flexion, and maybe it's more of that extension that needs to be tested on him. One part of the exam that I thought was just brilliant, that's really a goldmine of information in a case like this, was just the simple act of asking him to stand up and watching him as he tried to get out of the chair. And that's really important because it tells you there's a big component of proximal weakness here. And so classically, proximal weakness, we're meant to think it's a myopathy, right? That's the kind of thing you can get in an older patient with polymyalgia rheumatica. You might see that with a variety of endocrine or metabolic diseases, right? And so we're definitely going to be thinking about that in him. We're going to definitely be working them up for some of those things. But the fact of the matter is, is that you can also get this from a myelopathy. You can get this from a cord lesion, from a upper motor neuron lesion as well. So that was the weakness component, but there's also some pretty significant sensory deficits on him as well. What did you make of that? There is, and they're really remarkable, right? He has stocking glove type sensory distribution of symptoms, doesn't he? He's saying he that does, yep. he feels, arms, uh, uh, right, right, in both hands going up to the elbows, he has that sensation. That's what we call stocking glove. And so that's meant to make us think of peripheral neuropathy. The vast majority of diseases that cause that type of stocking glove distribution are chronic. 
their uh, diabetes is the biggest one, right? Diabetes mellitus. And it happens over a long time. So it's not usually as alarming to us, right? The history is there. It happens with alcohol, right? That's a huge one. That might be going Mm -hmm. on here. Hepatitis C, you see it all the time. And lots of people have chronic hep C that don't know about it. And they might present that way. Renal disease presents this way. HIV, a lot of them get this peripheral neuropathy. And this patient hasn't seen a doctor in over 20 years. So in terms of some of these chronic illnesses, we really don't know you know, what's been going on with him over the last two decades, it could very well be one of these metabolic or endocrine disorders that's been chronically progressing. Exactly. There's one thing I would add, though, just to the sensory examination that I think is critically important because it really could help us distinguish between something in the cord and this peripheral neuropathy. And that is checking for a sensory level. So simple to do and something that I always include in this exam. You're just going to take anything a little bit sharp And I usually take a tongue depressor and break it in half and just sort of go down, starting at the neck and going down through the dermatomes. What I'm more looking for is a subtle difference in the way that they perceive it. So what I tell them is I say, listen, as I'm going down, I want you to tell me, is there a point where it just seems different, where all of a sudden you don't feel it as much, or you Mm -hmm. just feel that I'm touching you, but you don't feel that same sort of uh, sharpness there. And if there is such a point like that, that's really important, right? That means that there's a level, and that refers to a myelopathy into the cord. So let me tell you what we did for him. You know, he's an interesting patient because a lot of this seems really chronic, but what was a bit unclear to me was whether or not something changed in the last five days, right? Something made him come in. Did it just slowly and gradually cross the threshold where now he couldn't do his activities of daily living, and he was finally like, okay, I have to go in? Or did something change sort of more acutely in the setting of a chronic illness? That part wasn't really all that clear. So of course, we're going to start a workup. And of course, this guy, just look at him. He can't go home. He can't walk. He needs at a minimum, you know, he needs a workup, but he also needs some physical therapy and assistance. So we initiated a workup. We got some labs. So we got a CBC. We got a chemistry panel, a troponin, a TSH. All these came back and they were normal. We did do a CT of his head. That right arm looks so profoundly weak. I was really expecting to see evidence of an old stroke in that distribution. But his CT head was done and it was read as no acute abnormalities. There was just some kind of microvascular changes suggestive of ischemia, but nothing acute, no big mass, no big prior stroke. But what do we do at this point? What else can we do for him? Right. And I would note that I wouldn't rule out stroke completely because remember, they said that there was no acute changes on the CT, but you could have a pretty significant deficit with a pretty small lacunar stroke, for example, that might not show up. And so when they are suggesting that there is microvascular disease, you know, it makes me kind of have that still at the back of my mind that that could be going on. Yeah. I mean, he needs, he needs MRI. He needs MRIs for sure. And how much do you MRI? What do you MRI? Where do you MRI? <laughs> Any I think, questions? No, there's no question. I think that we're, get, we're definitely coming there. There's no question. There's no way around it because he really is profoundly disabled. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, at a relatively young age, I must say. I don't know what he has, but I know it's something bad. And I don't know if there's going to be some demyelinating lesions that we're going to pick up on MRI or an old stroke or new strokes, or are we going to see, maybe the patient has ALS. You know, I'm not going to make that diagnosis from the emergency department, but he's so debilitated and it seems like it's really progressed over the last year. So 
I kind of was at the point where I thought he needs to come in. He needs further imaging. He probably needs an LP, but we didn't have really the space appropriate to do that for him. And he needs to see a neurologist. And while he was in the hospital, he got MRIs done of his brain and his C-spine and his L-spine. And, you know, I was a little bit surprised, Stuart. So the MRI of his brain, it was really just nonspecific. Nonspecific white matter lesions likely representing chronic microvascular ischemia. I feel like we see that read all the time. So no answer there. At his C-spine, of course, it showed a lot of degenerative changes. But here was the key. Severe canal stenosis at C3 to C4 and C5 to C6 with some hyperintense signals that suggested cord edema. This was also seen in his lumbar spine at L4 to L5. And so neurology came and saw him, but they felt that this was really all due to the spinal cord compression. And so he was basically referred to orthopedic surgery for operative management. Yeah, and that that really is, and it's a, it's a lesson I, again, admittedly have had to learn over more than once because it kind of takes you back to see how profoundly weak you can be from a lesion in your cervical cord. He did not ever complain of neck pain. And when we palpated down his spines, he didn't have any tenderness of his spine. And yet this ended up being the diagnosis. So it was a great learning point for me and hopefully other people learn from it as well. Chapter five, summary. Let me try and summarize what I think are the key points. Now, the problem I could get into is basically reiterate everything they said because everything they said was important. But here are the things that I think that you really need to focus on when you've got that patient that comes in with sort of generalized weakness. And that is by far the most important thing is what do you mean? Jess noted this a number of times, but what do you, the patient, mean by that? And sometimes this can be quite frustrating because they don't have the words to describe it. So try it from a number of different ways. The next thing is I want to have a very clear picture of what this person was like at the best of times. So before this started, what were they doing? Very important. Again, were they just sitting on the couch and that's about all they could do and that's been the way it is for 10 years versus they were really active and they were gardening and they were doing all of this stuff and something changed. And when did that happen? Then you must do a full exam, everything, top to bottom. This could be every system, top to bottom exam, including a neuro exam. And I think the most important thing is get the patient up to walk them. We tend to not do that because they're in a gurney and uh, that's kind of a pain to get them up to walk. Get them up and walk them. And remember that many of these patients are elderly. And as Jess noted, they're super high risk. There is a very good chance that there is something very bad going on here. So think of them that way. And I think there's some sort of, we don't like to think of like screening tests, but if after a good history and a good physical exam, you still have this generalized, I don't know what's going on, but something's going on, you actually do have to do a bit of lab trolling here. So I would get an EKG, looking for an MI. I'd get a troponin, looking for an MI. I'd get a CBC, looking for the anemia. I'd get the lights to make sure that, that potassium isn't all over the place and the renal function's okay. You have got to check the PP, and I would add a chest x-ray. And after that, it really depends on your gestalt and anything that has been revealed. You could do the trillion-dollar workup, but you don't want to do that, and you don't have to do that most of the time. But paint me the picture. That is the key. Because if this is something that's degenerated very quickly over days, I might be keeping that person. But if this is a picture that has been playing out over months, I can potentially do this as an outpatient. Excellent. This is really important stuff. The approach to trauma, easy, algorithmic. The approach to uh, obvious stroke, 
yeah, easy, we can do that. But I'm vaguely weak, whatever that means to that patient. Drugs, tox, electrolyte, every part of the body could be involved. Very difficult. So thanks to Jess and Jenny and Stuart, and we'll see you all uh, next time here on the C3 Project.